Well, today is December the 1st, and so Christmas is coming. Today is the beginning of Advent, and so parents have an excuse to eat chocolate in the mornings. Today, Christmas is coming, and we all need to get ready. Well, according to the website uh, WikiHelp, there are 20 things that we need to do to get ready for Christmas. Are you ready? They include two months in advance... Start organising a Christmas gift list. Some smug looks. Some guilty looks. In November, buy and start writing Christmas cards. Early December, so we haven't missed this one yet, decorate the house with Christmas decorations. Put up a Christmas tree. Spray the inside of your windows with artificial snow. Go carol singing, buy an advent calendar, bake some cookies, drink eggnog with rum, and finally sleep when you get time off. Sounds rather stressful to me. What we're going to be doing in church to get ready for Christmas is to be looking at Luke chapter 1. Now Luke chapter 2 begins with the birth of Jesus, and so chapter 1 gets us ready for Christmas. And as we do this, we see how God got his people ready for that very first Christmas, how he prepared them for the coming of Christ. And in Luke 1, we learn all about God's word. See, Christmas is all about God acting in history, and he acts through his word. He predicts what he's going to do. He acts according to what he said, and then he explains what he's done. We learn about God's word, and in today's passage, we see three groups of people through whom God speaks. There are, first of all, apostles, then there's a prophet, and then there's an angel. And we learn about God's word. We learn that it is historical. That is what the um, apostles spoke of really happened. It's historical. We learn that it is restorative. The prophet John, who speaks God's word, speaks a message of restoration. And we learn that it is personal. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in person and he speaks to him and he demands a response. And that is a principle for us too. So as we prepare for Christmas, we learn about God's word. And it's serious because what we do with the word of God is what we do with God. So what do you make of the Christmas story? Uh, what is it really all about? Does this ancient narrative have anything to say to us today? Well, three truths about God's word, and hopefully we'll get them here. Firstly, it is historical, verses 1 to 4. So Luke begins by saying that many others have also written about what has been fulfilled. So look at verse 1. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. See, the events of Christmas do not come in a vacuum. They are the fulfillment of what God has been promising for years and years and years. If you were here at the beginning of the service, you'd have seen Jonathan's video. And that's what it's all about. Christmas doesn't come in a vacuum. God's plan from after the fall was to remake this broken world. So Christmas is wonderful news, because God is putting things right. That is why people wanted to speak of it. That's why they wanted to write it down. 
That's why Christianity isn't used to keep to yourself. God is putting things right. So these second-generation Christians, they wrote down all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they received their information from first-generation Christians, who we see in verse 2 were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. These 12 apostles and others spent three years with Jesus. Uh, They saw him teach with unique authority, heal the sick, calm the storm, exercise demons, raise the dead. They saw him die on the cross, and they saw him rise again. And they saw these things with their own eyes. And God enabled them to understand the significance of what they were seeing. They understood that Jesus is the Christ who's come to seek and save the lost. They understood that salvation is found nowhere else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. And so they spread the word. And if you've been coming in the evenings, looking at the book of Acts, we see that happening. They keep on spreading the word. The gospel keeps going out and out and out and out. They are servants or ministers of the word. And as they spread it and wrote it down, others did so too. More and more people wrote these things down so that more and more people could hear them. In verse 3, we see Luke's own role. He says this, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. See, Luke explained, explains here that he's investigated everything and he's written an account. And did you notice why? It is for his friend Theophilus. It's a lovely description, isn't it? Most excellent Theophilus. Uh, The phrase suggests that he's some kind of official or someone with high social standing. We know he's been taught something of the Christian faith already, but Luke wants him to be certain. He wants him to be sure. And so he writes this account. But also he has a much wider audience in mind. And so today, as we read his account we too can be certain of these things. It is historical. It really happened. So Luke begins by explaining the source of his writing, eyewitness testimony, and the purpose of his writing, certainty of the Christian faith. God's word is historical. So notice Luke is not saying these things have been made up. I've got a hold of this uh, fictional tale, Theophilus, It's quite a page-turner. It's pretty good. It's about this guy, Jesus. He never really existed, of course. Um, But it's a story that will give people hope and meaning and some sense of purpose today. But he's not saying that, is he? It's not been made up. It is historical. And he's not saying it's far-fetched. Got a lot of these uh, stories, Theophilus, written by gullible Jewish fishermen. They're pretty hard to believe. Miracles, supernatural... I suppose if you've just got enough faith, if you're willing to take a leap in the dark, you just might believe them. But he's not saying that, is he? It's not far-fetched. It's historical. And so the first way for us today to get ready for Christmas is to see that it really happened. Now, we may find these eyewitness accounts a little hard to believe in places. In angelic appearances guiding stars, the virgin birth. Now this will especially be the case if our starting point, if what we presuppose about the world is that it is simply material. 
But remember, these, these, um, these Jews here, they found what they were seeing pretty hard to believe as well. It's not that they believed it because they were really gullible, or because they were just looking for it, or because they were just really pretty stupid. No, they believed these things because they saw them. The Christmas story is not just a children's story. It's not just about animals in a world far, far away. Now, it happened around the time of Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. It was in the days of Caesar Augustus. It was in space, time, and history. God's word is historical. Now, you may say the writers were biased. Uh, they're Christians. But, of course, they became Christians because of what they saw. And being biased doesn't really stop you being a reliable eyewitness. Because if it did, then, well, no one would be. You may say they were written years later. But what we see here in Luke 1 is that what was spoken of was written down at the time. And it was written down in the lifetime of those who were there. You may say the documents have been changed. But there are close to 25,000 manuscript copies of uh, portions of the New Testament in existence today. Now, that's remarkable. We can be certain that what was written is what we have. God's word is historical. Tony Jordan is a scriptwriter for the BBC, uh, most famously for that brilliant television programme, EastEnders. And in 2008, he was commissioned to write the script for the BBC film The Nativity, which brought to film these events. You may have seen it. It's really good. And he began this process as a sceptic. He didn't believe these things were true. But his experience was that the more and more he investigated, the more and more convinced he became that this isn't myth or legend, but this is history. These things really happened. He said this, All I can tell you is you know a truth when you hear it. So by the end of this process, I'm now in a position where I actually think it is true. I think that it happened more or less as I portrayed it. I decided to make up my own mind, and by the end of the scriptwriting process, I believe that it did happen, and that it was a true story. Now, you may never have read one of the Gospels. And maybe you dismiss these things because other people do. And I encourage you, if that is you to take it seriously, to investigate, to read one of the gospel accounts, to see whether it has a ring of truth, whether it has any sense of authenticity, to see for yourself. And if we're Christians this morning, then we can be encouraged. We can be certain of these things. Everybody has faith, but Christian faith is well-placed. We can trust God's word. Our faith is on solid ground. God's word is historical. That's the first thing we see. Secondly, God's word is restorative. Now Luke begins the Christmas story by describing the events foretelling the birth of John the Baptist. It was in the time of Herod the Great, the ruthless master builder, the king of Judea. And there was this priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the division of Abijah, the eighth order of the Levitical priests. He was married to Elizabeth. She, too, was a descendant of Aaron, the great high priest and brother of Moses. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth both loved the Lord God. They were righteous in his sight. They observed his law. 
It's not to say they were perfect when it says they were blameless, but that they had integrity. They were the same at home as they were in public. So they loved the Lord. But we see that for all their devotion, for all their sincerity, for all their religious seal, there was great sadness in their lives. They were childless. They longed to have children, but Elizabeth was barren. And they were both very old. It had never happened, and it was never going to happen. They tried many times to conceive. They prayed for years. Their friends probably couldn't stop having babies, but never Zechariah and Elizabeth. God seemed just to say no. Some suggested they'd sinned. Should Zechariah really be a priest if God so clearly disapproved of him? Some said, was this not a sign of the curse in the Old Testament? So there was great pain, but there was also great shame. Elizabeth filled her days with good deeds. She simply needed sometimes, though, to be on her own. And she comforted herself with the women of the past. Sarah, she was barren for years. Then came Isaac. Manoah's wife, she was barren for years. Then came Samson. Hannah, she was barren for years. And then came Samuel. See, she knew God could do it. She knew it wasn't her fault. They didn't always do it. She didn't know. Well, one day, when his division was on duty, Zechariah was the one chosen to serve in the sanctuary. He was to go into the high place and burn incense on the altar. Now, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, His division would only be chosen twice a year, and even then, his chances were pretty slim. So he was excited. He went to work that day buzzing. He put on his garments, his white linen tunic, his turban, his ephod, his uh, breastpiece, his blue robe. He left the worshippers outside, went into the sanctuary. He was beating as he relit the altar. And then suddenly, to his right, a light appeared. A figure was there. He was terrified. He let us out a scream. And the angel said to him, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth have their prayer answered. They're going to have a son. Now, normally it was the father's role to name the son, but God is taking the initiative here. Now, it can be a slightly risky business to um, reveal the name of the child before they're born. People often feel a little bit freer to comment on the choice of the name. So we have friends who revealed their son was to be called Judah. But Judah's grandparents were devastated because they thought that sounded far too much like Judas. They didn't like that. So it's a risky business potentially. But the name is revealed here and the boy is to be called John. John means God is gracious. And as we'll see, Zechariah probably isn't going to go around telling people. Now, he's going to be a joy and delight to Zechariah and Elizabeth, we're told. He's also going to be a joy and delight to other people as well. And that is true, in some sense, of any child. But this is particularly the case for John, because he's unique. Now, why is he unique? Well, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He's going to be given a unique role. He's not to drink wine or any other fermented drink. That is, he's to be like a Nazarite in the Old Testament, such people were those who were particularly devoted to the Lord, like Samson. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he's born. 
That is to say, God will equip him for a unique role from birth. What's he going to do? Well, look at verse 16. The angel says, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist is going to restore God's people to God. Just as God is going to restore Elizabeth's womb so that it functions as it ought to, so John is going to restore God's people so that they function as they ought to. He's going to be like Elijah, we're told. Elijah was a prophet in the ninth century to Israel. It was a dark time. The king Ahab was wicked and the people worshipped the Baals. Yet Elijah was faithful and he called God's people to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to God. And John is going to do something similar. He'll bring restoration in families. He'll bring restoration in people's hearts. His role will be to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Because remember, God himself is going to come and he's going to put things right. And John's job is to get the people ready, like Elijah, to call them to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn to God. God's word is restorative. And so as we think about getting ready for Christmas this year, as we think about the coming of Jesus, the Bible teaches us that something has gone wrong. There's something wrong with our world. It's wonderful, but it's broken. Just like Elizabeth's womb. It shouldn't be like that. And the Bible teaches us that we're all involved. We're all broken people. There's something wrong with us. Like a shopping trolley that you try and push in a straight line but veers off to one side. So to all of us, by nature, veer away from God. We're made to worship and love the living God. And yet all of us worship and love other things. Good things we make into idols, sex, money, relationships, things that will never satisfy. And yet wonderfully, can you see, God's word is restorative. He calls us back. He calls us to get ready for his coming. And that message still stands today because... The Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, will still one day return. And he calls us to get ready for his return, to repent, to be restored to the living God. God's word is restorative. About a year or so ago, a a relative of mine became a Christian. And she was telling me about some of the responses that she'd received from friends about her newfound faith. She said some were surprised, some frustrated, I'm disappointed. The big picture was they didn't really understand what she was doing and they felt it was a mistake, that somehow she was becoming less than who she was before. And uh, that is the way some people see it, isn't it? Being a Christian sort of spoils your life a bit. Certainly how Virginia Woolf, the modernist novelist, felt when she heard of T.S. Eliot's conversion to Christ. She wrote to her sister this, I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Elliot, who may be called dread to all of us from this day forward. He's become a Christian, believes in God and immortality. He goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than his. I mean, there's something obscene 
about a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. But I suppose as Christians, we may not put it like that, but we can be tempted, can't we, to feel somehow that God is a bit of a killjoy? If only I wasn't a Christian, then I'd be free to do all kinds of things. Wouldn't my life be easier if I weren't with the Lord? You ever feel like that? But that's wrong, isn't it? Because God's word is restorative. He restores us to himself, the source of life. He calls us to leave the path of disobedience and go on the path of wisdom. To be the people we were made to be. To live the lives we were made to live. To be safe when he comes to judge. It is to be part of his people and to be ready for his renewed world. God's word is restorative. And thirdly, God's word is personal. I wonder as we look at the story, if you notice, what is the shock of the narrative? See, Zechariah sees this angel. He comes and he announces the coming of his child, the coming of the Lord. But Zechariah doesn't believe him. So verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife is well on in years. And he seems to me very contemporary. We might sympathise with him. Sorry, sorry, Gabriel. Um, God can't do miracles. Don't you know? Miracles don't happen. Sorry, Gabriel. That doesn't fit in with my materialistic worldview. Try something else. Science doesn't allow for this, and science explains everything. It's astonishing, isn't it? Because Zechariah, we know, believes that God made the world. He believes that every child born is not just a product of the intimacy of the parents, but that it's a miracle, even though the process may be the same. He believes that, but he doesn't seem to think in this case that God could act differently, that God could heal an ancient womb. He seems to think God, the creator, is now subject to his creation. Elizabeth is just too old. I'm sorry, Gabriel. It's beyond God's power. Poor old angel Gabriel. I mean, he must have been expecting joy, right? And yet he receives disbelief. And we can sense his frustration. So he says, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent, not able to speak, until this day this, day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zechariah is disciplined with silence. It seems also that he can't hear. So he's not to speak. And he's not to hear until the day the baby is born. God's word to us is personal. That is, he addresses us personally and he demands the response of faith. Zechariah made the wrong response. He disbelieved. He had all the evidence in front of him and yet he, was, he, he did not trust. He thought he knew better than God. And so he was disciplined. And yet wonderfully there is... Um, an overwhelming sense of mercy. God is still very kind to him because the words still come true, don't they? The baby is still born and the people will still be told to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Well, outside, the worshippers are pretty confused. They don't know what's going on. Zechariah eventually joins them and um, he tries to explain to them what's happened by miming. It's like a spontaneous game of charades. And I don't know how he did the angel. Maybe he used wings, his arm for wings. How he managed to show that he didn't believe the words, I don't know. 
Maybe you could try and think about that later. But he then returns home, and Elizabeth conceives. She's been shown God's favour. The word of God has come true. And at home, the people are getting ready for Christmas. God's word is personal. So as we read God's word today, this word written years ago, which is God's contemporary word, he addresses us all individually, and he calls us to believe. We see in Luke's gospel that Jesus has come for all types of people. He, he calls the fisherman, the prostitute, the tax collector, the widow, the childless, the poor, the orphan, the blind, the lame, the Roman centurion, the Pharisee, the rich, the Jew, and the Gentile. All types of people. His word is personal. He addresses all of us. And he demands the response of faith. So that's the question for us today. Is what will we do with the word of God? We all by nature believe certain things about this world and ourselves. We all by nature disbelieve certain things about this world and ourselves. That is, we all have faith. We're all believing in something and someone. And the question is, who are we trusting? Who are we believing in? And Jesus calls us to believe in him. Luke wants Theophilus to believe, and he wants us today to believe. Because God's word to us is personal. And remember, it matters. What we do with the word of God is what we do with God. Jesus says soberingly, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the Father's glory. God's word to us is personal. And so what are we going to do? If you're not a Christian, then please see, Jesus calls you lovingly to repent and believe. To turn from your sin and to turn to God. And can you see how wonderful that is? Because God is restoring us to be the people we were made to be. He's restoring us to him the God who we were made to love and worship and enjoy. It's a wonderful thing. And if, you, and, if, and if you're a Christian, for us, God calls us to continue day by day to repent and to believe. So will we submit to the authority of God in every area of our lives? even when we're tempted, like Zechariah, to think we know better. Or we continue to make choices because God says it, even if we don't really understand. Or we say, not my will, but your will be done. And will we trust God, even in the mystery of suffering, even through years and years of unanswered prayer, not easy is it when God says no to our prayers and we don't really understand what he's doing must have been like that for Zechariah and Elizabeth well we trust God when despite all our zeal in fact our increasing zeal life gets harder and harder and harder when our life is the story of one struggle after another well we trust his goodness and his sovereignty in the context of bereavement of loneliness, of old age, childlessness, relational breakdown, guilt, depression, unemployment, 
See, we can trust him. And he calls us to do that. His word to us is personal. He addresses all of us and demands a response of faith. So Christmas is coming. We all need to get ready. And we might do those 20 things that WikiHelp suggested. But the most important thing is that we listen to God's word. His word to us is historical. It really happened and we can be certain. His word to us is restorative. He calls us to be restored to himself. What a wonderful thing. And his word to us is personal. He addresses all of us and he's looking for the response of faith.